You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Heavenly Father, give us faith to receive your word, understanding to know what it means and the will to put it into practice. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, so Psalm 115. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give to you our thanks and praise that we, we can be together this weekend, shutting out many of the responsibilities or distractions of our lives so that we might learn to think theologically about your word. Praise you that uh, I can be here and share and learn and grow through the many conversations that we can enjoy. Please bless us that we might bless others for Jesus' sake. Amen. For lots of human history, going to sea Sailing across the oceans has been so dangerous because, of course, when you're at sea, there are no landmarks by which you can navigate. Okay, if the sun's out, you've got a a bit more of a chance. But what if the sun's out and it's foggy? Or what if it's night? Until the invention of the compass was very hard to travel by sea. You could think you were heading in the right direction, but even the smallest deviation from what you, the direction you thought you were traveling in can lead you to a vastly different destination. We need our own spiritual north. 
We all need as Christians a kind of spiritual compass that we can work out that we're heading in this direction, our spiritual north, and any other kind of direction is going to lead us astray. We all need a spiritual north. And through the scriptures or through praying, the fellowship at church, we can get some of those clues about what the path is we should be on, what direction we should be headed in, and how we might reach the destination, seeing Jesus face to face and living in his presence forever. Church services are one of the primary gifts that God gives us to help us find our spiritual north. Church services aren't meant to be a burden, but a guide to help you work out what you do all the other days of the week. And it used to be that church, uh, the Christians built their churches facing east, so that when you sat in church on a Sunday morning and you look through the windows behind the preacher's head, you'd see the sun rising. Reminding you, of course, of Jesus' resurrection or the fact that Jesus would return from the east. Christians used to build their church buildings really deliberately thinking about north, south, east and west. Christians used to put lots of pictures of Jesus on the north wall of the church. We don't do that much anymore, but the idea was that because we need a spiritual north, we need to orient ourselves in the world. We need a spiritual compass. Why not put Jesus' pictures on the north wall of your church? He's our spiritual north. He's the one by which we're guided through life. Sunday worship is like a compass that helps us to work out what direction we should be taking every other day of the week. Or as the quote I've provided for you there in the booklet, worship is the space in which we learn to take the right things for granted. Isn't that a great phrase? At church, we're learning to take certain things for granted, certain spiritual principles that are just givens, so that when we leave church, Every other day of the week, those things that are so normal for us when we're together remain our guides, our points of reference every other day of the week. And in Romans chapter 1, which we'll be looking at in this talk, so I have it open. In Romans chapter 1, getting worship right is one of the most significant challenges of the Christian life. Before Paul goes on to explain all the other wonderful things in the book of Romans, he spends chapter 1 just making sure we've got the very basics in order, how we should worship, that we worship the creator and not the creation. Look at those extraordinary verses in Romans 1, 24 and 25. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie 
and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Paul wants to start his letter to the Romans by getting back to the very basics. Are you worshipping the creator or the creatures? The most basic question for this weekend is, what is our basic spiritual orientation? Are we worshipping the creator and deliberately working not to worship the creation? God gives us lots of instructions in the scriptures about worship. We'll be unpacking them in the course of the weekend. But this is the most foundational lesson of all. But it doesn't answer all of our questions because sometimes the Bible uses the word worship to describe everything we do every day of the week. And sometimes the Bible uses the word worship to describe just what we do in church. The Bible uses the language of worship in broad ways and in really particular ways. So Christians argue about the word worship Extensively, you've heard of the phrase worship wars. So in Romans 12, for example, Romans 12, 1 to 2, Paul can write this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here, Paul uses the language of worship to mean anything you do in your body, any day of the week, what you do in your body might or might not be acceptable worship. Or in, in Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. Paul uses the language of worship to describe what governments do. So Romans 13, 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will recur, incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Or verse 6. Because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God or servants of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. The language that Paul uses when he talks about the government being ministers, he's using religious language. The word is a lot like our English word liturgy. 
Paul is saying the governing authorities have a responsibility to help you worship. It's bizarre, right? We never think of our governments as helping us worship. Sometimes we might think of them getting in the way of us worship. But that's the language Paul used. There's a sense in which worship can be applied to all of my life. Don Carson writes like this, Worship is the category under which we order everything in our lives. It can be a big word. It can be a word that describes everything we do. But the Bible also uses worship language to describe what we do in church very particularly. So you can turn with me to uh, Revelation chapter 4 or Revelation chapter 5. So I'm moving from Revelation 4, verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were creative. The 24 elders sing a song, Worthy Are You, and in verse 10, when they sing that song, they are worshipping. And the same is the case in chapter 5. In chapter 5, the, it's, not just the 24, it's not just the 24 elders, but all the living creatures, numbering myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands, are worshipping with a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To him who sits on the throne be blessing and honour and glory forever and ever. And the, this is 14. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So both are true. Worship is everything you do, and worship is something you do in church. Singing, according to Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, is worshipping. So how can I hold these two, two different definitions together? Well, I've got for you there a, a definition in your handout which you might like or you might not like, and it's one of the questions you can take up in your small groups. I'm basically arguing that worship is a God-centred life. You're centred on God Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. But of course you're still centred on God when you're singing songs or listening to a sermon or praying for the world in Sunday church services, right? It would be weird to say all of your life is worship except the hour when you're on church on Sundays. That's not worship. And in fact, you're doing the same thing as a Christian every day of the week. You're making God the centre. It's just that when you do it in church, you're using different strategies for making God the centre, right? 
yes, it's a, a, a God-centered life. And I've tried to capture the broad definition and the narrow by saying it's a God-centered life of adoration and action. We need to do both if we're worshiping God, to adore him and to be active in the world on his behalf. It's a God-centered life of adoration and action, and it's captured in what we do on Sundays, in the corporate experience of God revealing himself and us responding. In a sense, what we do in Sundays is a bite-sized example of what we should be doing every other hour of the week. A great Christian thinker who's written about worship says this of our Sunday meetings. In assembling to worship and coming together to worship, we turn around and orient ourselves towards God. We face God. In worship, we're face to face with God. Worship is like a compass. Worship helps us to find again our spiritual north, helps us to work out what the lie of the land is, what direction we should be heading in so that we can reach our destination safely with assurance. Friends, worship is a compass. Paul teaches us about worship in that first chapter of Romans because Paul knows that we are sinners and we'll easily get off track. In fact, what Paul's doing in Romans chapter 1 is just explaining again Genesis chapter 1. He's writing a little commentary on Genesis chapter 1, what it means to be the creatures and not the creator. And he's explaining this with relation to the problems the Romans were facing. So say, for example, Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, there's a problem, and Paul's speaking about people on the inside suppressing the truth. Something internal. Human beings are really good at this. Making up in our heads all the wrong reasons for doing what we want to do. For verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to human beings because God has shown to them for his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, we, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, that's the serpent's language, right? Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. There was a suppression of the truth 
in their hearts, which leads to a wrong worship externally. They've got something wrong in their heart, which leads them to exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They started worshipping other created things. How ridiculous. Worshipping images resembling mortal man. You and I are the image of God. We don't have to create an image. We are. We have great dignity. But what we do, we kind of say, you know what? I'm going to create something else that I think represents human beings better than human beings. And I'm going to start worshipping creeping things. Things that belong to the creation. What an indictment on the way human beings live in this world. Suppressing the truth on the inside and then worshipping wrong things. Things in the creation on the outside. Wrong worship is a matter of the heart and it's a matter of our practice as well. We swap our devotion for the creator and instead worship the things of the creation. We don't give him glory. We don't thank him, which is the great lie. Some of you might be fans of the novel Jane Eyre, Charlotte Bronte's great novel, where she describes uh, the lead character desiring this. My future husband was becoming to me my whole world, and more than the world, almost my hope of heaven. He stood between me and every thought of religion as an eclipse intervenes between man and the broad sun. I could not in those days see God for his creature, of whom I had made an idol. Well, the Brontes' father was an Anglican minister. No doubt Charlotte Bronte knew the story of Genesis 1 or knew the story of Romans chapter 1. How easy it is for human beings to take, in this case, the person, the man she'd fallen in love with and make of that person an idol, taking the place of God in Jane Eyre's world. Well, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts, verse 24, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. It's so dangerous to get worship wrong. It's so dangerous to have our hearts set on the things of this creation, but not the Lord who made it all in the first place. And in fact, the Protestant Reformation, 
the great movement in the 16th century started out with questions about what is worship? How should we do Sunday worship? There were great issues about what Sunday services were teaching people about God, the creator, and about human beings, the creature. There was great error in their worship. Well, first of all, of course, it was hard if the language being spoken in church services wasn't the language of your heart. The language of church services was Latin, so it's pretty hard to get things right if you didn't understand what was going on in the first place, right? But also, in the Mass or in church services, people had begun seeking power from religious objects or from statues or from other things in the creation that were not the creator. They assumed that if you can control things in the creation, you could control God. It's a really fundamentally wrong-headed way of thinking about what church is for, right? They sought power from images or power from relics or power from the priests. They didn't understand that God's grace is not about grabbing hold of power, but quite the opposite, recognizing that we are powerless and God wants to shower his blessings on us. The Protestant Reformation, at heart, was a wrong understanding of worship. A few years ago, I saw someone, he said, it wouldn't be fantastic if we could turn back the clock and worship like they did in the Middle Ages. My response was, what's so attractive about superstition? It seemed to me to be the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> True worship is giving up your power. True worship is learning again to be the creature and not the creator. To recognize that as the creature we don't have power. And we have to depend on the one who blesses us without us grabbing for it. So Protestant Christians had lots of debates about what Sunday worship should be like and what parts of the Bible you should use to work out what Sunday services should be like. And it is true that some of the great Protestant reformers had different opinions about what you should do in a church service. They had different opinions because they were fighting different problems. Luther said, for example, that you can, own, you can do anything in your church service as long as the scriptures don't forbid it. Calvin, on the other hand, said, no, you can only do in a church service what the scriptures absolutely command you to do. Can you see that's a different approach? You can do anything as long as there's not a prohibition, or you can only do the things for which there's a direct commandment. So those great leaders had debates about how you should put together what a church service is. Partly it's because in Luther's world, 
there was lots of legalism, but in Calvin's world there was lots of superstition. So they were fighting different problems. It just took them a while to work out that that was the reason for their disagreements. Don't think that you come to church so that you can control God. As if having turned up on Sundays, God's now in your pocket. He'll do what you say. You've got his attention. But don't come to church either thinking that God is so far away and he hasn't noticed you for the last six days. And if you turn up to church, you might just get noticed by God. He might remember your name and think, oh my goodness, I I was going to do something for him or her. We don't turn up to church to control God. We don't turn up to church to get his attention. We come to practice being creatures. We come to recognize that we are not the creator and so we focus on him and give to him all our worship and praise. But it's hard to learn how to worship, right? It's hard to put together a church service. It's hard to spontaneously reflect on all that God is. It takes practice, I get it. Friends of mine have a a son who has great learning difficulties. And his tendency was to focus on himself and see nothing beautiful in the world around him and so they as good parents were trying to help him think not just about his own little world but think about what's out there that God has given to him as a gift and they tell the wonderful story of crossing the Gladesville Bridge in Sydney and their son sitting in the back seat of the car calling out to his mum and dad, saying, look at that fantastic sunset. And his mum and dad in the front seat of the car began to cry. He'd kind of learned to worship. he kind of learned to see that he, in his own world, could never make something as glorious and as beautiful as a, a sunset. And of course, we're always going to have to make corrections to the way we think about what we're doing in church. You never get it right once and for all. In 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, Paul has to spend two or three chapters explaining how worship works to the Corinthians, especially that so much of worship in Corinth was linked to uh, the meats that the temples would produce, given that they were meeting perhaps in those temples at other times of the day. Paul has to explain theologically what worshipping God is, given their own historical context. Or in the book of Hebrews, Christians are drifting back to their Jewish ways of life from the past, So the writer of the Hebrews has to teach them what it means not to drift back to things that are only a shadow of the substance who is Jesus Christ. 
And he has to remind them in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 to keep coming to church because they weren't doing that either. 1 John uh, ends with John's exhortation to flee idols. All through the New Testament, the writers are trying to correct the way we're getting worship wrong. It's hard to learn how to worship and it's so wonderful that we can spend this weekend thinking about the topic and trying to unpack theologically why it's so significant. What we do in weekly worship is to learn to be dependent on God. It's not a complicated goal. We're learning in a concentrated way to be doing what we should be doing every other day of the week. Worship is kind of liberation from our selfies-obsessed world. Do you know that the word selfie was invented in Australia? That's how obsessed about ourselves we are. <laughs> Worship is liberating us from just thinking about yourself getting your mind off yourself onto God and his will and his ways. What a relief church is. What a relief it is to be reminded that we don't have to control or run the world. Well, it's a relief to me anyway. Some people have begun talking about having regular Sundays off church where they don't have a church service so that uh, you can just find your rest on a Sunday morning. No. Sunday morning is church services designed to help you know that you can have rest. Right? That's the reminder. It's not like church is work. Church is the reminder that we are powerless and that's okay. That God's the creator and we're not. And that's fantastic. I actually get really worried about service church services where the worship, the way the service is conducted, is designed to make you feel powerful. So in church we sing songs, we listen to sermons, probably just one a Sunday. We take the sacraments and we offer our supplications to God. These are all strategies that challenge our self-obsession. Get your eyes off yourself so that every other day of the week you've practiced a bit what it means to be generous or godly or content. Now, I love singing. I'm not so good at it, but I love doing it. Singing helps me to get my, my heart off me and to know that I'm part of something bigger as together we're singing God's praise. It's joining my head and my heart. The words are addressing my mind and the music's addressing my heart. I'm singing with one voice, but together all our voices make for harmony. That's all part of what Sunday worship is, to help me know that I'm not the creator. 
So why go to church, right? Why not be that guy who said to me, Reese, I'm just these days listening to the podcast of that celebrity preacher. Uh, it's a better sermon than I've got at church. Uh, spares me a few hours. I can go to the gym first rather than kind of driving all that way to where churches, the church meets. But that's missing the whole point, right? What we do together is practice focusing on God with our body as a part of the body. Christ is the head. We are the body. He's the one who's calling the shots, right? And practicing being the body is practicing being what it, uh, what it means that we're not the creator, but the creature. And that's a healthy thing. We come to church to practice being focused on God with our body in the body. We need that regular recalibration, that regular reorientation. Worship is like a compass helping us to set our heart and soul back towards the true north. Effectively, worship on Sundays is helping you become more human. Because if you're practicing for the rest of the week being the creator, you're going to, it's going to come to it's going to be a disaster for you, right? Let me point. Let me let me tell you that now. Now we're practicing being human. We don't have to run the world, but we do need the spiritual health checks to make sure we're on the right track Sunday by Sunday. Some people out there kind of use this as their motto, I buy or I purchase, therefore I am. They feel really alive when they've just bought something. Or I have sex, therefore I am. But actually, according to Romans 1, the truth is that I worship, therefore I am. I find my rightful place in the universe as a creature not the creator. Praise be to God. We have a profound problem. We worship idols. We worship creatures. We worship the creation. But God has given us a profound solution. The Son of God gave up his glory to take the likeness of a human being so that we might worship him God in the flesh, find our true north and amazingly share in the glory of God ourselves. What's the definition of worship? Well, you can talk about it in your small groups, but I'm suggesting it's a God-centered heart. Is worship for Sunday or for every day of the week? Yes. Yes. 